Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast. This is Trent, one of the producers of the Cosmic Shambles Network. We're going to be doing a few more things uh, on the Science Shambles podcast than we have been of late including lots of regular chats with our new bloggers on the new Cosmic Shambles blog network. If you've not heard, the the Guardian Science Blogging Network has been closed down and discontinued, so a lot of the top writers and best writers from the Guardian Science Blog Network are now part of the Cosmic Shambles blog network doing exclusive things for us and you can read all of those at cosmicshambles.com slash blog. So on this first episode, hosted by Robin Ince, who does his regular blog at Cosmic Shambles, he is joined by Professor John Butterworth, who does the postcards from the Energy Frontier physics blog, and Dr Jenny Roan, who talks about uh, science in society, essentially, on her White Coats at Dawn blog. And also uh, Michael Legg, who writes uh, the music blog for Cosmic Shambles. So we hope you enjoy listening to this. Uh, Check out Cosmic Shambles, check out the blog network, support what we do on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Everything at Cosmic Shambles uh, is funded by your contributions on Patreon. Oh, and one last thing to note, uh, this was recorded uh, a few days before Jenny and Michael's first blogs went live on the website. So when we are talking about how they don't have a blog on the site, That is now old news. You can read posts from both of them on the site now, as well as John, obviously. So, on to the podcast. Hello, welcome to... uh, Michael, can you stop talking in the background, please? No, 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 I can't. Podcast. No, I can't. I've got a lot to say, actually. Oh, God. Welcome to uh, a mess of a podcast, uh, until we ask Michael to leave and then it'll be fine. Uh, This is the Cosmic Shambles blog podcast where we're going to be talking to some of the people who are, have or will be regularly blogging for Cosmic Shambles. I'm joined with, still hasn't bothered to blog, Michael Legg. I haven't been given a date yet. But I will, uh, apparently in the next week, I will have a blog up. Thank you very much. Uh, Very busy, so it's quite understandable why she hasn't done a blog yet, Jenny Roan. And uh, done two blogs already, so he's the best on the blog. So I'm sabbatical, that's right. Jonathan Butterworth, (laughs) as I'll call you now. Uh, uh, John, we'll start off with you. You, you, um, The the science blogs that we've kind of started doing, I mean, uh, predominantly because the Guardian Science uh, blogs ended, and we didn't really, uh, this does not seem the the right time to cut down on the amount of accessible science out there where we have so many people who uh, evidence-based thinking is... There are people who are really into it now, but there are some people who have really, enough, yeah, people. really fallen out with it yeah, as well. <laughs> so yeah. the first blog post you wrote was a fascinating one uh, about the detection of dark matter. which was is it? Yeah. Oh, it was, yeah, it was, well, it was about um, anti-proton production and mm. how that relates to dark matter, yes. Yeah, that's right. I remember that. God, it seems so long ago. Already. Well, it was. It was about so, three weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. but this was, uh, and a lot of people were fascinated by this. So this is, uh, c- can you explain a little bit about the problems where, uh, of understanding dark matter? Because as far as I know, as far as I know, anyway, from what I've been told, dark matter is necessary for the universe to be the shape and size that it is. But it's also uh, being a little bit tricky to actually. That's right. Yeah. Well, so the shape and size argument actually. That's why the cosmologists tell us they've got these big simulations. Actually, you look under the hood, there are quite a lot of approximations in those simulations. So although that is com- that is the best evidence we have from that also points to dark matter, that's true, 
the the one that that works for me is the measurements of um, galaxy rotation. Um, so uh, Vera Rubin, who died last year, I think, um, did the amongst others, but she led the really precise measurements of the. Fa- you can tell from the redshift of the stars and things how fast the galaxy is actually spinning. Okay, and they're going too fast. So if you take into account all the matter we can see in the galaxy, and that gives you some gravitational traction, which provides a centripetal force. Imagine you're swinging a ball around your head on, in a sock, right? A snooker ball in a sock. I like the way that you're mixing Carl Sagan's Cosmos with Ray Winston in Scum. Yeah. You're getting right. a lovely a lovely set of images there. It's a, that's a diverse cultural background I have. Um, and, and at some point, if it's swinging too fast, the sock will break, right? And, 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 and it will go away. So the, the attraction of the matter is the strength of the sock. And according to our measurements, the stars are going too fast, so the sock should have broken. Okay? And it hasn't. So there are two ways around that. Either we don't understand gravity... In other words, we misunderstood the sock. Or <laughs> we, or there's more matter than we thought, in which case the sock is just a lot stronger than we thought because there's more matter in the galaxies, there's a bigger gravitational attraction. And the, both, both explanations are in play, I have to say, but the majority of physicists and astronomers and everyone in between tends to go for the more matter thing, that there's dark matter in the galaxies that we can't see and that's why they're going like that. And that also fits with the simulations that tell you how galaxies should be distributed in the galaxy, in, in the universe and that kind of stuff. So there's corroboratory evidence for it. I mean, it, what, what, I, what I like about telling these kind of stories is you hopefully get some idea of the kind of web, web of knowledge and best guesses and estimates and theories that we have of what's going on and you look for an anomaly where they don't seem to fit together, and the dark matter one is one of the biggest on the block at the moment. Also, it makes your sock purchases tax deductible. This yeah, which is a very I've good idea. The trick there, actually. The, I was in John Lewis the other day. Coming back to... I'll keep the receipt. Product, we'll product the next yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, is there a problem with... Uh, in t- well, maybe not a problem, but in terms of... I've spoken to a few people about explaining ideas of, uh, of theoretical physics, of particle physics as well, which is, in the end we always have to use metaphor that to actually... So there is always, whether people talk about the Large Hadron Collider and the Higgs field and the Higgs boson, there is always, whatever it might be, there is a level of metaphor that will be required, Mm -hmm. which from that point onwards then might increase the possibility of misinterpretation. Yes. um, I mean, when it comes to the experiment, actually metaphors are useful they're not essential because you can actually take someone down the hole and show them the experiment so in the end as an experimentalist that you could manage without metaphors in principle um as my tea is arriving i'm allowed to mention that my tea arrived, oh yeah the right? tea arrived at michael took Tur- it very carefully <laughs> brilliant thank you very much I always no, get worried. The, the moment, at least it's not. If it's coffee, I know the next thing I go. Now, as you see, as I add the cream to the hot coffee. <laughs> oh no, he's going to be explaining entropy again. This is a real beverages. cup of tea. This is not a metaphorical cup of tea. This is real, and uh, the, so, so with experiments, metaphors can be useful, but they're not essential. With what what I what does kind of blow my mind a little bit, and I'm unsure about it actually, is to what extent the theory actually is a metaphor. And so, is, so we say, you know, you need metaphors to explain all the maths behind the standard model. But maybe the standard model is actually a metaphor for the universe anyway, and maybe all the maths is just a better metaphor than a sock. But, you know, I, I don't really know about that. But we're trying to match all the time. We're trying to match pictures and ideas and frameworks that draw on other things we know to try and explain things we don't know. And in a way, the, using 
the sock metaphor away, but it's just doing that again. Now, I know there are better metaphors than socks, and you could actually use tensor calculus and general relativity is a, is a, has more information and it is more true to life than the sock thing. But it might still be a metaphor for what's really going on. And the same goes for the standard model and quantum mechanics. So I, I, I don't disdain metaphors. I like them, but you have to be aware of the limitations. And that applies also to the theories we have. See what I mean, Jenny? You uh, you've written three novels, um, right. which are your your uh, your in cellular research, uh, much of that also in in, in uh, cancer cell research, and your novels, the most recent one, Cat Zero, which came out in the the summer. You're using the novels to an extent to also explain things such as the politics of the laboratory, the ethics of scientific research. I mean, is that what, when you first started writing, is that what you, you, you hope that someone can both enjoy the adventure of the story, but at the same time, there are things that will enlighten them about the, the kind of non-fictional process of, of science? Yeah, I don't like the word explain, because that's always what I'm trying to get away with in my science communication. But definitely, I want to give a flavor of what research is like. And that was my main motivation. You know, you could read any popular science books that you want. There's lots of documentaries, there's museum exhibitions, but I wasn't finding that the human side of science being illustrated in a way that I thought was accessible and fun. So when I started thinking about lab lit, the concept of, you know, using science and fiction to sort of infiltrate people's ideas, not, not to teach them about science, I, I really don't like the idea of fiction being used to educate. I think that's kind of, it's not art. So I, I, I don't want to have a novel about, for example, viruses, which this novel is to teach people about viruses, but what I really want them to know about is what it's like to be a virologist, the fly on the wall in the lab, of being in this position where you're actually... It's, it's more like a detective story than, than a science story because that is what scientists do. They, they hunt down clues, they get, go off on the wrong track, they, they are sort of distracted by personal things in their lives, and that was what I wanted to get across. And... Yes, it's great if people learn a little bit about science at the same time. There's a lot of science in this novel as well, but that's not the main goal for me. So is, do, do you feel there is still a problem in terms of, of, of humanising uh, scientific endeavour where, you know, not that long ago I think it would be that, that scientists are seen as a different creature. It's a different species. There's a, you know, almost there's a scientist gene that makes, you know, the, uh, and, and even the things that were written about in the 50s and 60s of, the, of this kind of idea of the scientist is someone who's just counting all the, ah, I've counted all the birds and that's the research done. Uh, and then we do have people like, you know, the, the, the stories of Richard Feynman being perhaps the most famous one in terms of humanising uh, science. Uh, do, you, do you feel that's still an issue in, in public uh, perception? I think it's still a huge issue. I think one of the last posts that I wrote for the, my late and belated Guardian blog was about this topic, that we are surrounded by people who are very charismatic, who are not evidence-based, and they, they are very somehow very trustworthy. I mean, thinking of people like Donald Trump, who is telling out whatever, how many lies a day they've documented, but somehow it doesn't stick because his fan base views him as a charismatic person that they trust. It doesn't matter what he says, his persona gives trust. And we kind of have the opposite problem as scientists. I think we are perceived in a certain way, maybe not so much anymore, but certainly back in the day. Uh, we're perceived as maybe not being that trustworthy. We're in our ivory towers, we're, we're building clone armies, you know, we're, we're coll colluding with pharma to poison people with vaccines because obviously that would be a great business model. You know, if you have a vaccine to market, you should put poison in it and kill off all your clients. Mm -hmm. You know, 
people see that scientist image in their mind and they think secretive. They think maybe evil, maybe a bit twisted. And aside from you, John, I don't know anyone who really is. I don't know. Just kidding. I don't know. (laughs) Sorry, I missed that. I've been too busy thinking up an evil evil plan over here. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have nefarious plans. You know, we have, you know, we go into work. We're, we're human beings. We, it's a day job. I mean, it's a vocation as well, but it, it, at the end of the day, we're just people. And, 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 it's actually really important to understand that scientists are not like that because if you look at what we produce, we produce truth with a capital T. It's not really like that. The knowledge that we put out there is sort of a messy approximation of truth, and we're always going back and forth and fighting about it you know, in our <laughs> conferences. And, and, and it's, it's not truth, and you can't just have a press release and say, we have cured cancer. It's not ever that simple. And I think if people saw scientists as human beings who are complex... Um, and, and sort of real people, they would understand that, first of all, you could trust their messages because they're maybe just like a guy you'd have a pint with down the pub. And secondly, that you know they're not actually peddling the truth. They're doing their best to, to make sense of the universe. And whether the very you know big bits like John or the very small bits like I do because I'm studying bacteria at the moment, it's all just um, a messy approximation of truth. And if people understood the scientific method and, and the way we were, I think that would be a lot clearer to everybody. And do you think that, I mean, in terms of, do we, the, the problem of the pace of news media means that if any scientific research does eventually actually manage to get on the, the, the front page of, a, of a, a news website or on the pages of uh, a print newspaper, more often than not, it has to have some form of spin to have made it newsworthy to what they think the, the bigger public wants to see? Yeah, we're only seeing... The press releases that, that are getting out there, that are getting picked up, are the ones that are sensationalized. I mean, this is not a very... This is an obvious thing, I think. But almost all of them are wrong or completely premature. And I just look at headlines and I immediately dismiss them because I've been trained to know that it's not really that simple. Mm-hmm. But I think the vast majority of people will see something in a reputable broadsheet and think, oh, yeah, that sounds interesting. I'm going to be... Cancer will be cured in five years' time. I think this uh, is the value of, of this is one of the reasons for blogging, right? Yes. Is because, not okay. The audience for a blog is not as is not the same as the Today program or something, um, or or even or still less one of the the um, even more mainstream TV programs or something. On the other hand, it does at least provide if if people want to know more about a big big science story they'll go and google stuff they'll go and look things up now and if all they find is conspiracy websites then that's pretty poor if they find some good actual scientists saying you know well being skeptical about about the results being skeptical about the press release discussing what it was like in the lab at the time then that can be very positive and you know sometimes feels a bit niche um but actually the audience is comparable to the number of people going looking at People are Googling for this information. They want to know about vaccines. They want to know about that cancer story. They want to know, is the LHC going to destroy the universe? And it's really important that when they Google, they don't only find nutters or people with an agenda to push that's nothing to do with the science involved at all. So so it's kind of it's sort of motivational in a way um, to do that as well. Um, I, I, I like... Uh, I mean, I agree with most of what you say, except that I don't trust people in the pub either. <laughs> so, so I think one of the important things is to say, you know, when, when is a scientific result actually more credible than something you made up in the pub? Because they are. I mean, we think science progresses, it gets somewhere. Uh, and you're dead, dead right that it's not just truth from on high, and it's seldom unequivocal, and it's seldom, uh, it's almost never um, 
definitive, but it's better than what was before, and the direction is clear. And I think that's a really difficult thing to get across and and writing about what it's like working in a lab and the fact that done by people as it is and 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 done by and people who are distracted and have other motivations sometimes and and are, and make mistakes and are confused yet it progresses yet science does actually achieve things and do, and is a way of humans operating that has done better than everything anything we've come up with before in terms of understanding of the universe and our bodies and making our, our lives longer and happier and better in general um and i think drawing get getting that line right by saying science is not um absolute truth and be all and end all perfect thing done by weirdos and on the other hand it, it is something done by chaotic people but on the other hand it's not like everything else that people do it does actually give some results that you don't get by sitting around reading books and making things up yeah, I... No. <laughs> well, that's very rude to both Mike and I, isn't it? I think. Well, we've got. Yeah. The, uh, well, I love when you talk about that. I love that uh, Gelman amnesia, which is, you know, <laughs> Murray Gelman, the, the uh, I suppose, most famous really for the uh, work, the, the Quark. Yeah. Uh, where, uh, do, do you know about the Murray Gelman amnesia thing, Jenny? It's, it's, he he said sure that I, do, actually. A... I know about the Quarks. Oh, but not the oh yeah, this is. Maybe I've just forgotten. Oh, don't worry. I, I read about this in a book. Um, <laughs> it was. Uh, suspect then. <laughs> what, what, what he, he said. When you're reading a newspaper and you get to a story which is about something you know about, and very often you go, "Hang on a minute, that's not that's wrong," and that's no, that's not what that subatomic particle does. Uh, that's not how we found that out. It's not even that's not in Geneva. And then you turn the page, and the next news story is about something you don't really know about, and you go, "Oh, well, that's very sad to see that that's happened." And so <laughs> yeah, yeah. you you read, and I mean, I, I find that you forget that it can't just be your area of knowledge, which Everyone is the bits of the newspaper. It just, it just by some kind, like mm. I was thinking about, we always you know talk about Nick Cave a lot, but when Mainly Nick Cave, that's our main conversation, yeah, yeah. and. Uh, but when 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 Nick Cave was in the newspapers, when when there was the uh, that's the newspaper I buy, the one yeah, with Nick Cave in it, Nick, yeah, Nick yeah, Cave, yeah, yeah, Nick Cave. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I remember d- during the the the, the time when uh, the uh, when his his son died, mm-hmm. and there was some of the I mean there were terrible things in it. There were there were you know people who taken snapshots of, of he and his wife you know visiting where, and these newspapers going Nick Cave, who of course is known by his fans as the Prince of Darkness, and I thought would the when is he? I I mean, I spend quite a lot of time yeah. with fans of Nick Cave, not just the ones I've got in my own head, including yeah. myself. But uh, I mean, if Ozzy Osbourne reads that, he'll be so upset. Yeah, but it's just <laughs> like, I think really hard for that. And you think, well, if they get something as simple as that, which is really easy to work out, any of the nicknames had that. So yeah. why the veracity of all other stories? And it's a hard thing, isn't it? That scepticism to maintain mm. your your scepticism, but at the same time not be a cynic. And as you said, to to try and work out who was it last week said, um, oh, it's Harry Harry Croto. There was a, there was there's an old quote from Harry Croto saying, you know, that he felt. Didn't say didn't say last week. Did he? No, he didn't say it last week. No, I was just saying that. The scepticism. No, sorry, it was it was up <laughs> last week. It was it was tweeted last week about about you know that one of the things that he, that he said shortly before he died was that the most important thing to teach children was to be able to work out what was most likely to be a good source and what yeah. was most likely to be true. I mean, if you're sceptical of everything, you're as ill-informed as someone who believes everything. Mm. I mean, there, there's nothing nothing magic about yeah. scepticism. If you just assume everyone's lying, then, well, at best, you become a solipsist and just stay in your bed all day. But, I mean, you you, you never... <laughs> Fair enough, that's probably not too bad. <laughs> but, 
But yeah, you're not you're not being any smarter than than the gullible person who just believes every the next thing that comes through the door. If you're just universally skeptical, skepticism. If you, it... it's hard though, isn't it? Because you've got a there's a famous story. I can't remember which particular um, leading skeptic it was, philosophical skeptic, and uh, one day he got his head trapped in a ditch, and one of his pupils <laughs> walked past, like you do. and thought. Mm. I can't be certain whether he would want me to pull him out of that ditch. <laughs> so it's best I don't do anything because a sceptic has taught me that. And so, you know, that bit of, of being able to filter the information and go, well, I'm going to kind of accept this pragmatically for the time being. Seems, as you were saying, that the power of the story, the power of, of the dogmatist in the fact that they can say the universe is anything they want and the charisma... That seems to be an enormous human problem. I also think that if, if you know how science works, if you if you meet a scientist or, or read a novel about scientists, you you work out that it, we don't all agree. Like it's not like a press release. Science isn't. There's a lot of dissent, and I think that causes a lot of uneasiness with audiences who are used to seeing this black and white science. And when they see two scientists disagree, you know, we've all we've all seen this, um, and they think, oh well, if if this climate change guy thinks this model is right, but this other climate change guy thinks it's not quite that, then they, they can't even agree. So how, why should we believe it if these two guys can't even agree? And I, th- and I want to think, I want to say these people come to one of our conferences and just watch us rip each other apart mm. because we, we don't agree on a lot of and stuff. Paradoxically, that is the reason to have some more confidence yeah. in that process than in one where yeah. someone speaks and everyone goes, okay. Totally. <laughs> So, so people have to understand that dissent and disagreement is, is an integral part of science. And skepticism, yes, you can definitely go too far. And, and that really, I, some people sort of just on principle object with everything. And, and they don't get very far with their theories either. So it's, a, it's got to hit the sweet spot between sort of taking on board the consensus and then... And the evidence. Yeah, mm. and, and challenging it as you can. So otherwise people wouldn't drink cola for that reason. Well, I've, I've looked into it. And if mm. Pepsi and Coca-Cola can't even decide which one's better, I'm going to have to drink Lilt. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, Michael, you love Lilt. Uh, that's yeah. my segue to you. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. Now, you're going to be writing a scientifically rigorous uh, very regular blog yeah. uh, about music. Uh-huh. Uh, and with well, that... Scientifically, what is the best sound? With that scepticism, though, where would music really be? Actually, it's it's the complete opposite, because we we believe everything that a rock star says that's what we do if we're a music fan we just buy it all oh yeah you meg uh meg was it jack white and meg white oh yeah they're brother and sister no they're not but it doesn't matter because we like the story anyway you know uh, uh um you remember the moment you found out that art garfunkel didn't write the song there you go oh. Jim, Jim, jim morrison's parents reading uh, an interview with their son saying how uh how he felt when they died i mean you know we read and gone, oh, that's really sad. Poor Jed's a little orphan. Now, you know, what is your favourite? Do you have a favourite, that one of those legends which people really believe? And you're right, you know, Jim Morrison's an interest because it's yeah. Charlie mythologised. Of course and, he is. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a lunatic. I mean, but, I mean, I never bought into him because those leather trousers were doing nothing for me. But, I mean... Better on Theresa May. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. Well, she's a much better dancer than, than the likes of Jim Morrison. The people have voted to ride on the storm. <laughs> they, uh, they, it is their choice, and they will be riding on the storm. But you said the people were strange as well. Oh, that was, that was before I was in government. Thank you. Thank you, Theresa. Thank you. Uh, I don't know. I like all rock um, bullshit stories. I mean, oh, the, in fact, like, 
you know when you two, you two are a good example then of this, aren't they? This is this is when the skepticism's coming in. And they go, all we've got is three chords and the truth. I'm not interested. Then. Yeah. <laughs> really boring. I want a big liar on that stage. Yeah. Tr- truth has got no place in my record collection. So that's my science. And what's the first blog you're going to write for blog post? I think I'm going to be writing about the Scottish music scene. You and I, uh, we just talked about this with Trent. Um, you and I went to see a brilliant uh, exhibition at the Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh uh, called Rip It Up, which is about the entire history of Scottish pop music. And the thing is, it was... Just so utterly exciting. That's orange juice, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah orange yeah. juice, yeah. There's a nice, there's, don't worry, yeah. there's a nice Edwin Collins cabinet. He's definitely in there. Everything's in there. Lonnie Donegan's shoes. <laughs> Still my favourite Edwin Collins. I met Edwin Collins at uh, Latitude Festival about seven or eight years ago and uh, and and, uh, and his wife as well. And uh, we got talking about books because I was doing a book show mm. and she went, when I first knew Edwin, uh, he only had one book and it was called Some British Birds. And we were talking about the fact the idea <laughs> the idea of an author who lost his nerve at the last show, well, I'll finish the encyclopedia of British birds. Have you got the thrush in there? Can we change the title to Some British Birds, please? <laughs> That's good. But it's, yeah, and it starts with Lonnie Donegan. So it's, oh, it's, it starts from Skiffle and it goes through, you know, Lulu. All the way up and to the, Wet, Wet, Wet. A lot of Wet, Wet, Wet. But well, that's a nice, in one way, even though I would is. rather have had more stuff about the fire engines mm. and uh, and a lot of the Joseph postcard K. label and Chemical yeah. Underground. Paul Savage's Mixing Desk is there, which he did Mogwai yeah. albums on and all manner of stuff. But yeah, it's, it's a pretty, beautiful... But it's, it's just the whole idea of, like, a band... Like, see, once again, I'm going back to YouTube. YouTube, if you listen to their, let's say, last 12 albums, there's nothing really that I think is exciting. But seeing a band that lasted for two singles, you know, they, they look and they sound like the most exciting band that's ever been on the planet. And there were so many of them in this very, let's face it, brief history of Scottish mm-hmm. pop. Mm-hmm. That just made the scene far more exciting than any massive stadium rock mm-hmm. band possibly. We were talking about, of course, in the last time, uh, this band, the Keep Cats. They're 15 years old. They were introduced onto the stage right in front of me by, by uh, a guy going, this band, they're already pretty famous in Reading. Let's make them famous here in Aldershot. And it's like, yes, that is that. far more exciting. And they did, didn't they? They are oh, famous absolutely. in Aldershot. Yep. No, so you're doing that. Jenny, What's your? Uh, have you got an idea of what your first uh, blog post is going to be about? Mostly what I write about is what it's like to do science and to be a scientist. Uh, I work in a, a microbiology lab. I run a team of people. We're studying urinary tract infection, which, of course, has lots of scope for humor and pathos. We, you know, we, we have mm-hmm. a lot of we in our lab. We, we do, you know, we do two whip rounds in the department to get control we from everybody. I find we that very we libraries are very interesting. Was yeah. when I found out that NASA has a a a, 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 a we library of really? all the yeah all the different um space all the all the, the missions Apollo etc and beyond that there's apparently uh, there's a, a big jealous. kind of uh, yeah li- s- library of we. I want to sample their we. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, well. <laughs> I get distracted by we, but but basically I like to write about what what's happening in my field, what's happening in my lab, but the human side, not necessarily the fact, facts and figures being prominent. I mention the facts and figures. Again, as I mentioned before, my passion is about the fly on the wall of the lab. That's what I want to to impart. And I also talk about issues in science that are not maybe the facts and figures again, but things like women in science or 
or um, problems with diversity in science or the problems with communicating with the public uh, and, and getting that dialogue going. Uh, anything to do with the interface between science and the rest of the world is where my blog will probably be sitting. Thank you. And the, uh, the fact that you've got a library full of wee and loads I of know. flies on the Gosh. wall. Good. Uh, the, uh... <laughs> Could you learn anything from wee from space? Maybe. This is, this no, is what's no, I mean, perked I'm up my interest. Maybe Robin pointing that out to you is going to lead to a scientific advance. Right? How, can you guys I get some, how can I get me some of this stuff? Yeah, well, I, I bet there's someone who hangs around the back <laughs> of NASA with a couple of bottles. Are you, are you sure this go is Bells Aldrin's wee? Go and talk to what, NASA It's cell. lilt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was an incredible bit of um, uh, NASA findings, wasn't it? From, uh, you remember the, uh, obviously the Columbia uh, Space Shuttle disaster? But in the actual Rip It Up um, uh, exhibition, do, do you remember this? There's so much, obviously, just scattered to Earth, mm. but there's practically nothing of the space shuttle intact. Mm-hmm. But one thing was completely it in one piece, and that was a run rig CD. A run wow. rig CD wow. survived that disaster. There are some fascinating stories actually. Wow. Of there are hardly also, bunch the, 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 the cassettes that uh, different, you know, and, mm. and the annoyances when people would take up their their cassette of their favourite music when they were doing uh, some of the uh, well, and still goes on. Obviously not on cassette anymore, but you know that mm. bit of going, oh no, this is the Martian. Yeah, right? too much Dolly Parton again, you know. Um, and John, what's the next uh, blog post? Do you know what you'll be writing about next? You also wrote, we should say, one recently about the uh, the anniversary, ten year anniversary yeah, of, the of uh, LHC. Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to avoid it being whinging about Brexit, so I'll do, do something else. Um, but uh, I, I might. We just filled up a, um, a big tank full of liquid argon at CERN um, and saw neutrinos with it, um, which has been in the news last week. Actually, it was quite. A, it was a press release wow. which was true. Um, that, that, that we uh, is, is, we're building a big new. Say we. I'm not personally involved in this. I'm the, the LHC is my bag. But the, this is other stuff going on at CERN. Um, and they, they built a prototype at CERN. It's an enormous tank. Actually, I went and stood in it with Adam, Adam, Adam Rutherford and Hannah Fry at some point because they were out there for the, for the Radio Four, and uh, which is great. I was just blagging along. I was nothing to do with it. I just got to stand inside this massive gold box before they filled it with liquid argon. Anyway, they filled it with liquid argon. Now <laughs> um, I got out first, and um, and they saw tracks with it last week of, of neutrinos. The idea is that neutrinos interact very rarely, so you need a huge volume so that even one of them will have any chance of interacting. And then it's got to be transparent and highly sensitive so that when they do interact, you can see the little traces of particles that come from them. So they've seen that. And the idea now is to build one ten times bigger and put it in a mine in America and fire neutrinos at it from Fermilab. And, and it's, wow. it's kind of exciting. So I might write, I don't know, because the news moment for that has passed, although there'll be more on that experiment later. But I think it might be worth just writing a little blog saying this is what is going on and why. Um, so I might do that. I, I haven't thought, I'm not sure yet. That's uh, thank you very much, uh, Jenny, Michael, and John. Uh, my blog's uh, generally going to be I'm on a never-ending tour now, and uh, never-ending tour till the twenty-third of December. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, still, one of my favourite things was going to a cafe in Johannesburg, which had on the wall it said "bottomless cup of coffee, maximum three cups." Uh, and um, so I, uh, so my my will, uh, blogs will generally be tour diary and book tour diary uh, over the next few weeks because I will be. I've, it's highly 
really likely I'll be in a town near you sometime in the next 70 days. That was uh, so threatening. It really was, wasn't it? So you better turn up, right? Because otherwise what happens is yeah. everyone wants you to see you in Southend. Everyone wants to see you in Southend. Who was it? Well, actually, it turned out it was just me and my two mates, but we thought we were everyone. All right, then buy a book. We haven't got the money. Ugh. Anyway, so um, <laughs> thank you very much for listening. Uh, go on to uh, Cosmic Shambles uh, blog network. We've got many writers as well, and Susie Gage and, and Dean Burnett and Pete Etchell's, uh and and many more besides that. Uh, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.